Good morning and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. We are going to continue on our Christmas series. We started off last week. Now, remember I told you before last week that, you know, one of the things pastors always struggle with is how do I find a fresh way to approach this topic, which for many of us have heard sermon upon sermon about this. But what's interesting about this as well, too, and what I love about the Bible is no matter how often you've preached on an event or a passage of scripture, there really is always kind of a new fresh way of looking at it because the depth and, and the breadth of it. Uh, this morning, we are, uh, the series we have been uh, doing or have done is called The Kingdom of Christmas. And the idea behind it is that as I have been meditating on Christmas, as I've been thinking about this, this, this time uh, for a few months before it, obviously, uh, I've been thinking to myself that there's, there's a lot to this that we kind of miss in regards to, we, lo- we look at it as an event that happens in December, but there's so many implications of Christmas that can follow us throughout the year. So let's just recap what we talked about last week. So what I've said, as I said before, Christmas has been disconnected, has become disconnected from Jesus. Or more importantly, Jesus' message and mission. So when we talk about Christmas, we talk about, you know, presents and trees and, and other things and all that. But really, it's, it, it, it doesn't almost have almost any connection. And again, please please hear me very clearly. This is not me going, oh, the world, it's, it's secular. It's, it, it is all these things. But really, it's us as Christ followers who are meant to kind of bear the true message of it. As I said to you last week, that I have friends who are agnostics and atheists and other religions. They all celebrate Christmas because whatever Christmas has become, it has, been, it has largely been seen as a, as, as a secular holiday now and that anybody can, can celebrate it, which again, uh, I, I personally don't have a problem with that just because it's, uh, it has more implications than what we simply understand. If everything that God does has a purpose or a meaning, then Jesus' entrance and introduction is a part of this. So what I mean by that is that God could have chosen any time to have the incarnation to reveal Jesus to us. And he chose how he did it, the method he did it, and the time he did it for a reason. And what we have to understand is that reason actually has echoes that kind of uh, have impacted us today. So last week, we had a very... I don't know, I don't want to say strange sermon, but I preached a, pa- a sermon last week on, on Matthew's genealogy, and I've never done that before. Remember, we looked at the 14 generations and, and, and how Matthew really goes out of his way to show the lineage of Jesus with the son of David. And I said to you last week that, well, like, why does Matthew start off with an odd genealogy? Like, we all say the same thing, right? As Gentiles, we say about Matthew's gospel, well, Matthew's writing to Jewish people, so of course he's going to start off with a genealogy. That's true. But what I kind of showed you last week is Matthew's genealogy is would almost be considered offensive to Jewish people because first of all he shows he has four Gentile women in it which which is absolutely unheard of he has people in the genealogy who would have perhaps have some scandal associated with their name and he omits people from it as well too and again we talked about the reason why for that last week right and and remember i told you last week that the reason why matthew starts his genealogy because buried within matthew's genealogy is the gospel so remember matthew when he tells his own story in matthew chapter 9 he identifies who he is he's a tax collector and as i said to you last week tax collectors were absolutely the most hated of all people in Israel. They were collaborators with the Roman occupiers. And this is the thing that the Jewish people hated the most. And and remember I I said to you last week that right before Matthew's conversion story was the story of the paralyzed man, right? Now remember, Matthew is writing his gospel not as a linear account as in, you know, A, B, C, D. He's writing his gospel to try to convey what he wants the reader to understand about Jesus. 
And I said to you that the reason why Matthew has the, spirit, the paralyzed man right before his, his, uh, his transformation, his conversion, is because Matthew is saying to himself, I was that paralyzed man. Because I was a tax collector, I could no longer go to synagogue, I couldn't go to the temple. I could no longer participate in Passover, Seder. I could, like, all these religious ceremonies are now cut off for me. Matthew was paralyzed in his spirituality and his ability to approach Yahweh and, and, and receive grace and mercy. So I think it's so interesting that Matthew sees himself as that paralyzed man. And of course, remember what Jesus is to the paralyzed man. What's more difficult for me to say to this person, get up and walk, or that your sins are forgiven? Which, of course, anybody goes, oh, you, you know, sins are forgiven. That's just words out of your mouth. Like, anybody can do that. But telling a person who's been paralyzed for their entire lives that they can get up and walk, now that would be something. And God, and, and Jesus does both, right? So that's how Matthew sees himself. So when Matthew writes his genealogy, he is embedding within it. And again, Gentiles, we miss it, of course, right? But embedded in this genealogy is, is, is Matthew's ferocious understanding of the gospel, Right? Matthew wrote his Christmas story as, as a way of, of inviting the other. Right? Matthew was the other. Remember we talked about this idea of othering? Othering is how we take a person and we minimize that person to an idea and an objective or value. And that way we can hate the individual without actually hating who the person is. Right? Othering is a way of dehumanizing people. Right? Matthew, when he's talking about his own gospel, his own story... He, he must feel dehumanized. He must feel set aside, set apart from his people. But because of Jesus and because of Christmas, Matthew goes from the other to now to the one another. Matthew now declares that, you know, once I who was separated from God, I who was separated from God's mercy, and now embraced with Yahweh's presence because of Jesus. And of course, we saw uh, Matthew, he starts off the Christmas story, how he shares a little bit about it. He says this, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow of death, a light is dawned. Right? And again, it's such a beautiful imagery. I love how the Bible uses metaphors and images to convey who and what Jesus is. And, right? and Matthew identifies himself, uh, identifies Jesus as a light. Right? If you've ever gone camping or if you've ever had like a... Uh, because of the windstorm yesterday, you know, those, that, the people, like, uh, I think, like, thousands of people in Ontario lost power. Friends of ours, and uh, so funny, they lost power, but they posted to social media. So I don't know, I don't, I don't know how that works, but they posted, you know, them reading by candlelight, you know, on and, and social media. And again, you know, it's, it's social media, so you have to kind of chuckle. Because, you know, they're reading by the candlelight, but someone's over there trying to frame the picture and all that. But again, whatever, right? But, you know, in, in, in darkness... Light has great value, right? And that's what Matthew sees of Jesus. He says, the light has come because I've been living in darkness. I've been living in the shadow of death and Jesus has now come and I am now freed from that. So that's what we looked at this week. And this morning, we're going to start off our Christmas sermon. And if you're visiting the UCC this morning, welcome to how bizarre we are and how we're going to approach this. We're going to talk about this idea of can we be good without God, right? This is an interesting concept, right? So as I've mentioned before, I love having conversations with people who, are dare, who think differently than me. And because of how I think, that's almost everybody. But I, I especially like talking to people of different religions and different philosophical views. I especially love talking to atheists. 
I have several people in my life who are uh, friends in my life who are atheists, and I always like to engage them. I even, there's a couple of them actually, I'll even pitch sermon ideas to, because I'm always curious, like, how do you understand this, right? So one of the, one of the themes when you ha- whenever I have a conversation with an atheist or an agnostic, not so much the agnostics, but definitely the atheists, is atheists will say something like this to me. You Christians think that you need God to be good. Well, you don't. I'm a good person, and I don't believe in God. And so then I always ask the next question, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, which, of course, I enjoy. I always ask them, well, explain your morality to me, this, this incredible morality that you have crafted from your own intellect and your own experience. Please convey this morality to me. And what they d- always say is the Ten Commandments, right? They're like, don't steal, don't kill. I'm like, wait, 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 that sounds familiar. I don't know. Where have I heard that before, right? And so uh, Stephen Allison asked this question in this article, and I think he says some interesting things. He says this. The question of whether a person can be good without God might seem a strange one. After all, surely none of us would be so arrogant as to claim that only those who believe in God can live a good life. In fact, Christians recognize that others who do not share our faith can live exemplary lives. And, and this is absolutely true. We have seen, in, especially in the last several years, prominent Christian leaders who their lives are exposed and we kind of go, Oof. we go, oh, that, oh, right? And then the world, secular atheists, can look at that individual and say, see, Christians, you think your God makes you good, but look, that's obviously a lie. And then they'll show, you know, uh, billionaires or, 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 you know, famous people or celebrities say, look, they're good people, and look what they're giving them, you know, to charity, or look what they're doing, right? It's like, you know, so the idea of comparison, like, good to good, right? It's like, ah, okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, Stephen goes on to say this, uh, or Stephen, sorry, uh, goes on to say this in his article, um, Uh, A moral absolute is the opposite of moral relativism. Moral relativism, which is very prevalent in our society today, states that morality is essentially a personal thing. We each have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. Now, what's interesting about this, and every one of you have experienced this, is in the last, even the last five years, there has been seismic shifts in values. And and it feels like the world's been turned upside down. So at, at some point in time, we're kind of going, like at one point in time, I thought this was okay, but now it's not okay, and I think this is now good, and it's not good anymore. And even somebody who says that this is good a year ago may change their mind on what it means today. And we're all kind of left going, and, and, and if we're really honest, we're all kind of like little, we, we don't want to say anything lest we offend anybody. And I'm, and I'm going, of course. But there's also reality as well, too, that these shifts are actually kind of good because some of the things that we've accepted or the things we've turned a blind eye to is things we shouldn't have either. So please don't misunderstand that I don't, I don't want to kind of go, I don't want to be old man stone here and going, well, back in my day, you know, I, I'm 50, so I can actually talk like that now, right? But, uh, you know, uh, Martin, don't laugh. I know you're a little older than me. But, um, but, you know, like we can always have this idea. We can look at a generation uh, and we can kind of, well, I, I was talking to the ushers outside there and I said, you know, maybe Whitney Houston was wrong. Maybe children aren't the future. I don't know. I just feel like, you know, because they're, maybe they don't know what they're talking about. Anyways, so the idea simply is, is that if moral relativism is true, then what happens is there's clashes of values. And this is true of every age and stage. So it can be said that, you know, older people will clash with younger people. That's just cliche. Because now younger people are clashing. Right? Because, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I, I believe this, I believe that, and no, no, I believe this now, and I don't believe that. And it's like, it, it's just kind of this, this, this uh, smorgasbord, 
I don't know if I said that correctly. Uh, it's, a, it's a buffet of, of, of this idea of values. Uh, he goes on to say this, and this is the part that I, re I, I really like. In 1979, the late Yale professor Arthur Leff published an extraordinary art article entitled Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law, in which he states, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete, transcendent, and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. Now, what I love about that is the highlighted part is unnatural. See, as we kind of, as I'm going to share this morning, see, I believe that Christian morality or Christian ethics, it is unnatural. And the reason I, I say that, and I'll show you in a second, is because we have said, and I think we've, we've actually been wrong about this, is that we as Christians have said we're good people and, and that we, you know, we do this, we're nice people, right? We're the uh, Ned Flanders of the Simpsons, right? We're, we're good people, right? But Christian morality is actually, it's transcendent to good because there's something, part, there's a part of it that we forget, and I'll, and I'll show you in a second. And finally, says this last line, in the absence of a lawgiver separate from ourselves, we must become gods. And that's the part that I think is actually kind of interesting. So, um, oh, my clicker has died, uh, Marika, you're on. Uh, so next one, uh, I've mentioned this guy before, his name's Will Herberg. And he has this phrase called cut flower ethics, and this is what he says. The attempt made in recent decades by secularist thinkers to disengage the moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally based religious context in the assurance that they could live a life of their own as humanistic ethics has resulted in our cut flower culture. Without the life-giving power of the, of, of the faith out of which they have sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. Whew, lots of words. Let me explain. What he's basically saying is Western culture has basically said, okay, we don't need our Judeo-Christian roots anymore. That's archaic. We are now enlightened and civilized. We can create our own morality. But what he says is that the morality cut from uh, the religious roots of it, like flowers, it begins to die. And what we are seeing right now in our postmodern culture is the death of that morality. Nobody knows what's right and wrong because it's all detached from and what God is. As Western culture continues towards secularization, God is not absence. He has been replaced. Now, this is what I want to say there. Next one, Marika. Uh, people have access to what most call basic morality. I haven't killed anyone. Right? You ever had that conversation with somebody? Are you a good person? Yeah, I haven't killed anybody. As if genocide or mass murder was, was, was what, what goodness was all about. But that's what people will say. But this is where I want to kind of uh, to, the, to the atheists I have conversations with and to others as well too, this is where I kind of, my feathers get ruffled a little bit because Christian morality, again, is transcendent. But authentic Christian morality transcends what we do to others to the far more difficult what I endure from others slash life. And this is where secularization fails utterly and completely. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by this, okay? So what I'm, tr I'm trying to say there, thanks so much, Lou, is what I'm trying to say there is that when we say as Christians that we're good people, we use the wrong metrics of what good is. The metrics that we use for good, everybody can do. Oh, I give to charity. Well, I give to charity. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Do you see how our morality gets kind of muddled with, with, the, with the world's morality? But what the world hasn't figured out yet, and Christians have forgotten, our morality is not about what we do for others. It's about what we endure as well, too. It's the sacrificial piece of us that doesn't quite get the, the, the press or the attention it deserves. 
right? This is what really separates us from everybody else. Okay, odd way to start off this morning's Christmas sermon, of course, but uh, what we have to understand is that there's this word that we use at Christmas time, especially Emmanuel. Now, in case you're wondering why we use the I versus the E, it's basically a transliteration of the Old English, so don't worry about it. It's the same, it's the same word. But what we have to say about Christmas is Christmas is Emmanuel. We sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, a fun fact about that, 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 that Christmas hymn, it wasn't actually written as a Christmas hymn, and it actually has its roots in the 8th century. And what's interesting about it is that it was actually just simply a worship song. It wasn't actually meant for Christmas. It has been associated with Christmas, but really the fact is it's, it's not really supposed to be for Christmas. So Christmas is Emmanuel. Christmas is the kingdom come. Remember I said to you that this series is trying to connect the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about so much with the message of Christmas for us every day. Christmas is the return of God. And as I want to point out, and I will show you a little bit more about this a little bit later on, is Emmanuel is a story of the Bible and the underlying quest of all of humanity. I'll show you why in, in, in a few minutes. But Emmanuel isn't just simply something we sing at Christmas time. It's not something we just think about at Christmas time. It is the, it is the heart cry of humanity since the beginning of time till the end of time. Emmanuel is a central concept in the idea of Christmas. So let's take a look at Matthew, right? So we, we looked a lot at Matthew last week, but Matthew really brings us to this point, right? So Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, it says, it says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Now, the word fulfill, and we're going to really spend some time on that fulfillment piece of it. Because when Matthew throws that word fulfill out there, he's just like, oh, it's to fulfill. But you have to understand the background to the fulfill in order to understand why Emmanuel is more than what we think it is. And so what Matthew does there is he shows, it off, uh, he shows this idea of Emmanuel. But in your, in your Bibles or your electronic devices, you'll see that the word, this, this passage of scripture is not a New Testament passage of scripture. It actually comes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And so what this means, so, again, a quick note. Um, whenever we look at Old Testament prophecy, we have to always guard against uh, jumping a thousands of years ahead or even to today and say, oh, they spoke this a thousand years ago, but it means something today. That may be true, but it also meant something for them back then. Right? Old Testament prophecy wasn't just, you know, I'm going to say something to you. It means nothing to you now, but boy, there's a church in Waterloo who's going to love this in a couple thousand years. Right? No, no, no. It meant something to them. And so the concept of Emmanuel that God was, was sharing with Israel at the time, it meant something for them as well, too. So God, uh, God first spoke the promise of Emmanuel to ancient Judah's king Ahaz. It was a tumultuous, rebellious, and fearful time for the king and his people when the Assyria forces occupied the land. God offered a King Ahaz a choice. He could trust in God or suffer defeat from his enemies. Ahaz was offered Emmanuel at the time of great need. So Emmanuel is not a gospel concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It's actually embedded, and as I'm going to show you this morning, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Right? Emmanuel isn't just a Christmas idea. It is all about what the Bible talks about. But let's take a look at the first Emmanuel. Right? So again, as I said to you before, Emmanuel isn't just a Matthew or a Christmas concept. It's actually the story of all humanity. So let's go back to the very beginning. Right? In the book of Genesis, we see this, uh, this concept of Emmanuel. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Now, for those of you who are with us for our Easter series, I, I explained to you about the idea of the garden in Eden. Remember, Eden was, was not a garden. There was a garden in Eden. Again, words mean something here. And the reason why is because what is being conveyed to us is there was a special place in all of the place that God had created for humanity. Um, the same Hebrew word, uh, Hebrew verbal form, hifhel, used for God's walking back and forth in the garden, also describes God's presence in the tabernacle, which I think is really important, right? So as we, get, as we go further in the book of Exodus, when we reach back to, when we go back forward in part two for next year there, there is this, this is word that's used, it's called Shekinah. Now, we don't, we, we don't use it today, but it's this, it's, it was this, it's this way of kind of conveying the, the tangible presence of God. Well, the same word that the Genesis writer Moses uses to convey God walking back and forth is the same word they convey ab about the temple. The Garden of Eden was the first archetypal temple in which the first man worshipped God. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, uh, John Walton goes even further and says this, The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. Remember I shared to you that in the temple, the, when, when God describes to the crafts uh, people what the temple interior should look like, it's a reflection of the garden, right? Remember, the menorah is, 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 is a reflection of the tree, right? And inside of it are different uh, images to take the, the, the worshiper back to when God was Emmanuel with his people. Right? So we go, okay, that's the first Emmanuel. And remember, I've mentioned this to you before, and I'll just, again, kind of briefly say this. As I've studied rabbinic commentators on the Old Testament, one of the things that I've, I've learned, and this is, uh, I've conveyed this to you a couple of times, so hopefully you'll remember this, but there are three harmonies present in paradise in, in, in the very first Emmanuel. Remember, I said to you this before, there was, there was harmony between God and humanity. There was harmony between humanity, humanity, Adam and Eve. But there is also harmony between creation and humanity. Now, this is important, right? Because this is what Emmanuel looks like. This is what the first Emmanuel that the Bible tells us looks like. But, of course, we get now to Milton's Paradise Lost, right? And this is where Lost Emmanuel is, right? Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken after he drove the man out, right? So this is where Emmanuel is now Right? And, and as I shared to you before, from the three uh, blessings or the three harmonies come the three discords or the three curses. Right? No longer is there Emmanuel between God and humanity. No longer is there a harmony between humanity and humanity. And no longer is there harmony between creation and humanity. So the curses are the disharmony, the discord that has now entered the world. And so what happens then is the rest of the Old Testament is the search for Emmanuel. Now, remember I told you at the beginning I was going to come back to this? What's interesting is, is that when you look throughout history, humanity has tried to find Emmanuel in all sorts of places. Uh, Gary L. Wenk um, in Psychology Today had a great article on this. He says this, Anthropologists estimate there are at least 18,000 different gods, goddesses, and various animals or objects have been worshipped by humans since our species first appeared. 
Today, it is estimated that more than 80% of the global population consider themselves religious or spiritual in some form. What was interesting is the 1950s, when atheism started really picking up steam in academia, one of the, one of the uh, prophecies of, of atheism, if I could use that word, was this idea that as, as civilization progressed, religion become no longer important. Well, that's actually the exact opposite of what we see today is that religious, uh, religions around the world, again, I'm not just talking about Christianity, but religions around the world are still important, right? And so what Gary is saying here, and this is really important, is that we think of Emmanuel as Christmas, we think of Emmanuel as Christians, but really humanity tries to create Emmanuel in 18,000 different versions of it, which I think is kind of interesting. But look, look at this as well, too. Uh, Dr. Uh, Andrew Newberg, he's a neuroscientist, he has this great book on how, it's called How God Changes Our Brains. Look what he says. He says this. If you contemplate God long enough, something surprising happens in the brain. Neural functions begin to change. Different circuits become activated while others become deactivated. New dendrites are formed. New synaptic connections are, are made. And the brain becomes more sensitive to subtle realms of experience. Perceptions alters. Beliefs begin to change. Now, as I've said before, and I'll just remind you, and again, I always say that. We should make a tic-tac-toe game for how many times I say, I've said before. Um, but... Study after study, and this is quantifiable, and my atheist friends hate this, but we know that religion helps us health-wise. It helps us biologically. It helps us neurologically. And what's interesting is that we, the secularization of culture would say that religion is no longer important, but with, with people feeling more anxious, more uncertain, and, and again, shame and guilt and doubt, all these things we know have negative repercussions upon our mental health, which in turn have negative repercussions on our physical health. Well, religion has been, has been for centuries, and today still, is kind of a buffer to this. And so what's interesting, what uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg is saying here is that this contemplation of God, it actually, it, it changes our brain functions. And again, this is the part that kind of atheists kind of hate to think about. But what's interesting as well, too, a guy named Clay Rutledge, this is a New York Times article, and he says something kind of interesting. Because what's interesting about atheists is atheists would say to you that they're the rational ones. Right? They're rational because they've gotten rid of God. They've ejected God, which is archaic and no longer necessary. But what's interesting is survey after study, study after study on atheist belief systems, it finds something kind of interesting. Is that atheists have weird beliefs too. Now, their weird beliefs may not be God-shaped, but there are other things as well. So Clay Rutledge uh, says this, and, and again, it says in his book as well too, people who do not frequently attend church are twice as likely to believe in ghosts as those who are regular churchgoers. The less religious people are, the more likely they are to endorse uh, empirically unsupported ideas about UFOs. An emerging body of research supports the thesis that these interests in non-traditional, supernatural, and paranormal phenomena are driven by the same cognitive process and motives that inspire religion. Isn't that incredible? See, what, and again, what I'm trying to convey, and I'm using a hammer to kill an ant here, Emmanuel isn't just something we think about at Christmas. It's not just for Christians. It is something that is... Um, it's, 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 it's in who we are as, as people. It, it, it is, it is hardwired in us. 
Emmanuel is hardwired in the human species. And it doesn't matter where we get in as far as civilization. It doesn't matter where we run to, what we, we try to replace it with. Emmanuel still haunts us. And so in the Old Testament, this, is, this pops up all over the place. In the book of Genesis, remember, the book of Genesis is the only book in the Bible that is, it takes place without the law. Remember, humanity is ejected from the garden. And, and, and lots of uh, people look at the book of Genesis and say, there's lots of horrible things that happen there. And my response is, yeah, of course there is. People don't know what is right and wrong because it hasn't been given to them. Right? Remember, the book of Genesis is more about God establishing covenants. And covenants is like a preface to the full revelation of who he is. There's, there's, there's one mentioned towards Genesis chapter 35 where um, Jacob is, 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 is now being tapped by God to be something more than he is. And there was one passage that says, get rid of all your pagan idols. This is, a uh, fun fact, is the, the second time, there's one more time before this, where any pagan idolatry is mentioned. Which again, makes sense because again, in the book of Genesis, they don't know. Right? And so, there's this, this scripture that says, you know, get rid of these things which are part of that. Now, look at this. And again, we haven't got to this book of uh, Exodus. So, in the book of Exodus, spoiler alert, right? Moses brings him to Mount Sinai, right? This is the presence of God. Remember, the people are freaked out. The mountain is shaking. There's thunder. And, and God says to the people, oh, by the way, if you even touch the mountain, you're dead. That would freak anybody out, right? So Moses goes up the mountain, and he's gone. And again, depending on the commentators you, you, you talk to, it's a couple of months. It's not, it's not a short period. Of time. It's not as if Moses walks up. They're like, hey, where'd Moses go, Right? So Moses goes up the mountain, to, to, and again, people know they, the, the thunder, the light. They know something is happening. But look what they say in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. By the way, this is, this is every pastor's nightmare. Who brought us here from the land of Egypt, right? Moses goes up the mountain, and people are like, well, Moses was kind of okay, but really, we need a god. Now, Understand something. This is Emmanuel. We as human beings were created to worship. And in the absence of God, we create our own gods. The gods we create are a reflection of who we are and what we desire. The allure of this is that nothing is required of us. We have an innate longing for transcendent justification. See, what's interesting about the new gods that we are creating in our culture today, they're just a reflection of who we are. And it's always great to serve a God that you've created because whatever, however you live is exactly what that God requires of us. Remember, I said to you, mark that down for your, hat, your bingo game. Um, if, you lo- if, 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 if the people you hate is the same people that God hates, it's no longer God you're looking at. It's probably just a mirror. Right? But this is the thing with the new gods that we've created. We have created gods that are in our image as opposed to humanity being created in God's image. The gods that we are creating today are in our image. And again, this is a story throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again, the people ask the question, where is God? Right? Jeremiah chapter 2. They worship worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. By the way, that's tweetable. Okay? Uh, like, like, like I think it's so important what the Bible says is that what you worship will influence who you are. This is why, and this is actually kind of a really great indicator to kind of identify authentic Christianity from cultural Christianity. Because authentic Christians would, again, not so much about what they do, but what they endure and how they treat others. 
while cultural Christians, well, they just look like culture. So what, when Jeremiah prophet says, you know, you worship these worthless idols, you become worthless. I'm like, yeah, okay. Psalm 42, 3. While the, my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? Right? Joel chapter 2. Don't let anyone become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? And Ma- Malachi chapter 3. Now return to me and I will return to you. And the beautiful thing about Malachi, and one of these days I'm going to do a ser- uh, whole sermon series on Malachi. Because remember, Malachi is the preface to Matthew. After the book of Malachi, there's 400 years of absence from God. And the next time God appears, the next time Emmanuel appears, it's Jesus. But what I'm trying to convey to you is that the entirety of the Old Testament is the search for Emmanuel, Zechariah. Right? In, the, in the book of Zechariah, there's more prophecies about Jesus and, and the Messiah than almost any other book in, in regards to what it says. And Zechariah chapter 2 says this, The Lord says, Shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day, and they too will be my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies sent me to you. So what is Emmanuel? God with us. But we say that as if it's like, meh, God with us. But it has been the cry of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And again, as I said before, it is the cry of people today. But let's go back to Exodus for for a moment. In Exodus chapter 33, there's this moment where the people, uh, I don't know, how, 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 do, how do I say it? They done gone messed up, right? So uh, I could probably say that better. But anyways, um, they've just messed up, right? And finally in Exodus chapter 33, God's like, okay, you know what? I'm done. I'm, uh, like I'm tapping out. I'm out of here, right? Now, look what God says, to, God says to Moses. Okay, you guys go ahead. I'm staying here because you guys annoy me, right? By the way. Every pastor has felt this too. And so, like, like God says, okay, I'm just done. But now look at Moses' response because Moses gets what we have maybe forgotten. Then Moses says to him, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Emmanuel. What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying something kind of important here. I would rather live in an uncomfortable wilderness with you than go to the promised land. I would rather endure the desert for however long it's been and however long it would be, because if that's where you are, if that's where Emmanuel is, that's where I want to be too. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11. Again, I love the fact that there's a prophecy embedded in the Levitical law. I will live among you and I will not despise you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. So in the Old Testament, it's just Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And the funny thing is, we think of it only at Christmas time. And yet, throughout the Bible, it's all about Emmanuel. Now let's go to Jesus. Because, you know, why not, right? The other gospel writers say it this way. Mark... Remember, Mark's gospel, which is Peter's gospel, he doesn't even mention the Christmas story. But he does talk about the idea of Emmanuel. Mark chapter 1, verse 7 says this, John announced, someone is coming soon who's greater than I am. I love the fact that Peter zeroes in on, on John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, right? And, 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 and John the baptizer says to his disciples, someone is coming. Emmanuel is coming. In Luke's gospel, which again is the linear gospel, for those of you who like a A, B, C, D type of uh, uh, gospel account, right? Luke says this, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Emmanuel has come. 
Now, of course, John's gospel, which is always a bizarre gospel, right? He has a totally different way of looking at it, right? Look at John, what John says. In John chapter 1, verse 9, the one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Emmanuel. He came into the world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, but even they rejected him. So the word became human and made his home amongst us, Emmanuel. The word, and I, okay, I, I've said this before, right? The message translation is a hippie version of the Bible. That, that's basically it, right? And I, I don't use the message a lot because, A, sometimes it really bugs me, but sometimes Eugene Peterson gets it right. So, and, and, and uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of John 1.14 says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved in the neighborhood. You know, I, when I read this, do you remember that one uh, Sesame Street song? Who are the people in your neighborhood? You know, come on, you, you don't sing with me. And this is why I don't lead worship. Thankful that Marissa sings for you this morning, right? But I, 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 in my mind, I had this, you know, Muppet Jesus. Jesus is a person in your neighborhood, right? You get it, right? Emmanuel. Oh, stop, get over yourself, right? This is Emmanuel. John sees Emmanuel as God moving into our space, God with us, right? Now, I want to show you something here. Um, Rabbi Jacob Straub, he's a PhD, he, he teaches uh, rabbinic studies today. He conveys this about the Messiah. He says this, the Jewish messianic belief plays a central role in the lives of Jewish people. In the redeemed world, swords will be turned into plowshares. Nobody will go hungry, the powerless will not be oppressed, and justice will prevail everywhere. This was the vision of the biblical prophets, and it remains the foundation of Jewish hope for the future. See, when I say God with us, when I say when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the kingdom come, there is something that was supposed to happen on this earth. Right? And, and, and I think the Jewish people have a beautiful image of this. See, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come for this to happen. But we Christ followers, the Messiah has come. But why isn't this happening? Because we only think of Emmanuel at Christmas. See, if God is with us, truly with us, then something has to change. We can no longer live for ourselves. We can no longer treat other image bearers, whatever religion, whatever they are as, as the others, because God is with us. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like, they see this as a vision of the Messiah come, right? Swords into, into, into plowshares. Again, a beautiful image of peace. Weapons will no longer be needed. Why? Because the peace has already come, which we're going to talk about more next week. That the powerless will no longer be oppressed. And justice will prevail everywhere. Oh, honestly, I just, I, th I think about that image alone of the manual. And I think to myself, we Christ followers have done a really bad job. Because the Jewish people are waiting for a manual to come to do this. But a manual's already come for us. And we have not done this. Now, Emmanuel was God's loving response to the pain and suffering in the world. No longer would God appear to a few. He would instead live and model his new kingdom he was establishing. Only God in the world could do this. But, controversial statement, Emmanuel doesn't end there. See, we think of Emmanuel for Christmas, and we think of Emmanuel as Jesus. But see, you have to understand something. The Bible, God has a grander vision of Emmanuel that we need to understand. And this is where we get to the next Emmanuel. And, 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 and Jesus says this in John. You know, John chapters 14, 15, and 16 are, are considered the three 
greatest chapters in regards to the mission of Jesus in connection with the Holy Spirit. Remember, in, in these chapters, Jesus says this to his disciples. It's good that I'm going away. And again, I've said this before. Right? If I'm a disciple and I hear Jesus saying, it's good that I go away, I'm thinking myself as a disciple, then what am I doing here? If you're just going away, then why am I wasting all this time with you? Right? But Jesus wants to unveil a promise of the next Emmanuel. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him. He doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you and later will be in you. And look at verse 18. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. See, here's something I'm going to say that's kind of controversial. Jesus is an incomplete Emmanuel. See, if we think of Emmanuel only as Jesus and only at Christmas, we miss the broader goal of what God intends for all of humanity. He was with a few, th a few thousand saw him, but the world at large never encountered him. Through the Holy Spirit, the world has many little Jesus, bearers of Emmanuel, out there bringing the Christmas kingdom to a lost and broken planet. See, Emmanuel, we sing Emmanuel at Christmas time. We think of Emmanuel at Christmas time, but you have to understand, God's vision was, was, was the profundity of it just staggers me to think that we only think of this word Emmanuel at Christmas time. Because we, by the Holy Spirit now, are bearers of Emmanuel. So this is how it looks. In the Old Testament, it was Emmanuel, God above. God the Father, but only appearing to a few. In the Gospels, we have God beside, right? God above, God beside, God besides Jesus, right? Many people see him, but still, not everyone. But now we get to the third Emmanuel. The third part of Emmanuel is God within. This is the church, God the Spirit. And guess what? All. This is what I love about Christianity. Is as much as media would love to tell you that Christianity is an old white person religion, there's more Christians in sub-Saharan Africa than there is in, 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 in North America combined. There's more Christians in the underground church in China than there is in all uh, European nations combined. There's, like, again, Christianity is not ethnically based. It is not racially based. It is not even demographically based. The gospel permeates every aspect of the world. Why? Because Emmanuel is meant to be greater than we understand. And every time we decide to, to awaken ourselves every day and going, Lord, I need Emmanuel. You know, I was driving here this morning, as opposed to walking, I guess. And uh, I was thinking, I, I, I just, um, okay, how do I say this? This last year has been tough as, as a pastor, right? Like the whole pandemic thing, last year and a half. It's been, it's been tough. It's been tough to know what to do. It's been tough to know what kind of rules and regulations we have as a church. And of course, no matter what you do, you make somebody unhappy. And, and again, that's, we just were so fragmented, right? And I was kind of driving you this morning, and I just want to confess to you, because, you know, I trust you. This is, this is a safe place for me. But I just, I just felt weary this morning driving here, right? And I, and I just, <laughs> and it's like the Holy Spirit as I'm driving here, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, remember the sermon you're about to preach, dummy? Emmanuel. I'm driving here this morning, and I realized I needed a manual driving here this morning. I need a manual. I need a manual not just Christmas time, not December 25th, but I need a manual every freaking day of my life. 
See, I need to wake up. Oh, I got an amen. This is beautiful. Oh, I feel. <laughs> Woo! I, okay. That's it. I'm preaching for another half hour. No, no. I'm, uh, uh, no, 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 no. The vision like, oh, no, please let me go. Okay. Like, I just realized that I, 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 just, I just need a manual. I just, I needed a manual this morning. I need a manual every day of my life. I don't need a manual just at Christmas time. I need a manual every day of my life. See, Christians can live like a manual isn't true or certainly not real. A manual is just at Christmas, we think. We will either welcome Christ every day and work within his kingdom. Remember, it's his kingdom, not ours. Or we will emmanuel something else. That's what you need to understand, right? Whatever you worship, you become. And the Bible already tells us, your worthless idols make you worthless. Right? We on, only the creator is worthy of our worship. Emmanuel isn't a Christmas concept. It is the hope of the world. John Calvin, I think, says it best. He says, the human heart is a perpetual idol, our God's factory. And that's what we're seeing in our culture right now. When we look at the world being turned upside down, we see the secularization of the, of the culture that we live in. Emmanuel is not absent. We just create other gods. We just create other things to worship. Because that's what we do as a human species. Because that was hardwired in us. The image of God was in us at the beginning, and it was shattered because of the fall. But we are haunted by Emmanuel. We are haunted by Emmanuel. Let me close. Don't you love those words? This is the final Emmanuel. Because if you read the sermon title at the beginning, it says four-part Emmanuel. So, so far we've looked at three parts of it, right? Right? Three parts. The fourth Emmanuel, the Bible tells us at the very end. And uh, what I love here is at the very end of the Bible, the very end of time, it's just a reflection of the very beginning. Remember I said to you at our Easter series that heaven looks like the Garden of Eden? That the tree, uh, the trees are there and it's, it's, it's lush. I always thought of heaven as this kind of um, matrix white looking place with nothing else but, you know, big throne of God. No, no, the Bible's image of heaven at the end is a lush, beautiful garden which should just mess with our understanding of, of our ecclesiology and what it, look, what, it, what it looks like to redeem the plan that we live in now. Right? This is why uh, if, if, you know, if I ever to build a church, it may not have a roof or walls, just nature, right? Trees and, 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 and that, because that's, that's more of a reflection of, of the final manual. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 to 4. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every, tree, uh, every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. See, the Holy Spirit is Emmanuel within us, but that's not the final Emmanuel. The final Emmanuel is when we stand before God and our faith is now sight. That there is no question, there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty. We stand before the throne with People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Remember I told you the gospel goes into the world? And in that moment, we have the final Emmanuel. No longer do we have to say, where is God? Who is God? Is God with us? He's right there. Right? This is the final Emmanuel. This is the final thing that God speaks to us of. He says to us, my plan was always to be with you in the garden in that temple, in the sanctuary, in the garden. You chose to live separate from me. You chose to run from Emmanuel, but I've pursued you out of the garden. Throughout history, throughout time, 
And you can create other little manuals. You can try to create other God's presences. You can try to create your own idols. But they're all unsatisfactory, and they do not meet the human condition. Only the gospel does that. Only the gospel deals with the darkness in our hearts. Only the gospel deals with the brokenness of who we are as human beings. Only the gospel reminds us that in that brokenness, in that darkness, in that mess of our lives, the one word that God speaks to us, Emmanuel, God with us, God around us, God within us, and one day, God before us. Let's pray. As I do every week, and I'm just going to tell you to do again, if your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. I do that to give you a meditative moment, a time of reflection. I asked Marissa to do something a little bit different, and Marissa's a good sport. I, I, I want us to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, again. And I don't want us to sing it as a Christmas carol. I want us to sing it as a prayer. And maybe we need to dust off O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and maybe that needs to be a part of our worship liturgy. Because I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded every day that I need a manual. I need God with me. I need God in me. I need God surrounding me. I just stink and need God all the time. Because without him, I am incomplete. I try to manufacture my own gods. I try to make God in my own image, but God is too great for that. The God of scriptures, the God of, of Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of just the God. He is beyond my comprehension. That's Emmanuel. That's what I need. And so we're going to sing, Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel this morning. But please sing it as a prayer. And if you're here this morning and you have had, maybe you've had the morning that I had. Maybe you had a week or this last couple of years has been tumultuous. This morning, right now, ask for Emmanuel. Ask to be reminded of Emmanuel. Ask that the Holy Spirit would rise up within you. I love how uh, Paul, it's the, the church of Rome says, fan into flame. Right? Maybe your faith this morning is a, like a dying ember. Well, the beautiful thing is, is, is blowing on that ember can burst into flame once again. And the Holy Spirit, who has been called a mighty wind, can, can breathe life into that, em that ember and restore in us that passion, that, that, that desire for Emmanuel once again. So this morning, let us sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let us sing the words. And I love the fact, the next line after, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Maybe you want to put your name in there. Ransom captive Raja. Because we are captives. We are, we, we are slaves to sin. And Jesus, Emmanuel, has come to ransom us from the darkness into his glorious light, who is Jesus. And I think that's what we need to be reminded this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Emmanuel. Lord, I just ask for forgiveness for myself, and perhaps some of us in here need to as well, too, that we haven't taken the concept of Emmanuel seriously enough. That we have forgotten that Emmanuel isn't just Christmas but it's every day. Lord, every day when we wake up, we choose who we serve that day. Do we choose ourselves, the gods we've created, or do we choose Emmanuel? 
God with us, God within us. Lord, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for the third part, of, uh, the second part of Emmanuel. But Lord, I pray that we would all desire the third part of Emmanuel, the Holy Spirit within us, living within us, teaching us, convicting us, reminding us of all that Jesus has taught. And Lord, within that too is the hope of the fourth Emmanuel, of the loud voice from the throne saying, God's home is now amongst his people. Because that is what drives us, that is what brings us hope when all looks hopeless. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak Emmanuel in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. We do things a little differently here. We do our announcements at the end, just because we do them at the beginning, you'll just forget them. Um, just a quick announcement. Just We've shared this before, but our schedule. So uh, one of the things that... Um, uh, we love at UCC is our university students, and one of the things we hate seeing is we hate seeing them going. And one of the things we also realize as well, too, is that we are still streaming because we still have people who are joining us online, um, locally, but also from afar as well, too. So we made the decision to stream our next couple of services because uh, we want to make sure that those who are part of our community can still be a part of our community. So next Sunday, if you show up here... Um, Get a coffee, but uh, we won't be here. We will be online. Um, and, of course, you can see all our, uh, all our uh, uh, the online services. Basically, it's, uh, it's uh, uccwaterloo.online.church. Uh, UCC but, and again, we'll put, it all, we'll put it on our Facebook, Instagram, and all that. But next Sunday, we'll be online. But we will be live. So I will be teaching live that Sunday so that we still have that kind of uh, live link to us. Uh, our Christmas Eve service will be uh, Christmas Eve uh, the 24th at 6 p.m., and it will be online as well, too. I'm excited. We've got some pretty uh, fun elements. We, are, we spent the day yesterday um, filming some of the UCC kids, and that was a wonderful experiment, and just a reminder why I'm not a kids pastor. And, uh, but that's going to be part of it. So uh, this Sun, uh, that Christmas Eve service will be uh, 6 p.m. Uh, on the 24th, and it'll be online as well, too. So we hope to join us for that. And our final online service will be the 26th, Boxing Day. So that will be online as well, too, and you can join us for that. We have a guest speaker for that Sunday. It'll be exciting. January 2nd, we are no longer online. We'll be back in person, but not here. We are at a place called Lush and Suave, which is 17 Herb Street East. And again, don't worry. All the information will be given to you. But we're going to be having a pancake breakfast and a time of sharing and, uh, and worship. And, and, and I'll be teaching, uh, sharing a bit of a message for uh, New Year's. And that's why it's Sunday, January 2nd. So Lush and Suave, just like, just like a street over here off of Herb there. And um, some of you said you want to help uh, make some pancakes that morning. So we're going to have a pancake breakfast and a service that morning just because why not? It's fun. Right, so uh, so that's going to be January 2nd. And then January 9th, we're back here. Right now, do you see why I put the schedule up so no one be confused? And even though I say it, even though I email it, even though I post by Facebook, I'll always get the, the uh, email, where are we today? I'm like, uh, you know, just so whenever I answer those questions, it's always in my, it's always just because I'm such a nice guy. Okay, also... Our retreat. So uh, we have a retreat forms out. We are so excited that one of the things of coming back to normal-ish is our retreats. We have we, one of the things we do at UCC here is we have a church family retreat, and it's for everyone, kids and, and, and everyone. And so uh, March 4th to 6th, we are going to be at Camp Kintail again. Now, space is limited, so make sure you grab your form this morning uh, and just to, uh, to kind of make sure you register for that. And, and again, if cost is an issue, students, I'm looking at you or anybody else, we will pay for you to go, 
It's more important that you join us uh, as opposed to anything else. The retreats are incredible times. Yes, we're going to do the high ropes course, and uh, yes, in March we're going to do that. But it's also going to be a little more, more relaxed this year as well, too. The fireplace will be going, and people who want to play Euchre against me will lose, and we'll, we'll, we'll do all of that as well, too. So uh, that'll be March 4th to 6th, the Friday to Sunday. Uh, Pastor Tim Day, who did our last retreat, is going to be speaking at this one. I'm really excited of, to have him with us, so that'll be happening. Also, one of the traditions we have here at UCC is our church ornament, and so that is in the lobby there. So if UCC is your home and uh, you would like one, we have them for free. Just see Melissa in the, uh, we have a few left. So make sure you get that for your Christmas tree. I'm so grateful to Mitchell for, uh, he spent like 150 hours of 3D printing to get this together. So, so grateful for that and so for, uh, for him to doing that. Last announcement. Tomorrow night is our young adults. We have young adults. It's at Le Chinsois and we're doing a Christmas party. And so we're going to have a Christmas dinner. And so people within the church are cooking a meal with a couple of turkeys and a ham and uh, making mashed potatoes and stuffing and, and stuff like that. So it's going to be great. But young adults, you have to look nice to get into the door. You have to dress up of, of, of some sort. I don't know what dressing up looks like these days, but uh, um, I'd be most impressed with a tie. Be less impressed with a Christmas sweater because I don't really like those things. But anyways, uh, that's tomorrow. At what time, Ben? 6 p.m. So at 6 p.m. at Le Chinsois, and so grateful to Kendra who is the uh, manager of Evolution Swell, who allows us as a church to use it. And we've got big plans for it in the future for the events that we hold together. So, uh, so grateful to Kendra and uh, Ryan, the owner there, who's going to allow us to use this as well. So tomorrow night, young adults, you're no longer at the Hoother. You're going to be at the Lushen Swap for our Christmas party. We are going to feed you, do not worry. And then Ben has whatever else he's going to do there. That's, that's going to happen. And finally, of course, um, for those of you who, have, who are uh, uh, who consider UCC your home, we are so grateful for you continuing to support us. I've had several requests this week for... Um, uh, people looking for gift cards for uh, groceries and other things as well. And, and, and the great news is I get to say yes every time. Why? Because we have a community who continues to support us. So thank you so much. Don't forget, if you any donations up to December 31st will be eligible for the uh, 2021 uh, charitable receipt. So just that's the kind of the cutoff for that in case a couple of you were asking me about that. So you, uh, text to give uh, or e-transfer, whatever, whatever is uh, is is your preference. But again, this is for people who call UCC your home. And so thanks so much for doing that. Okay, let's stand and let's have our benediction as we are released into the wild. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for being Emmanuel. But Lord, help us to manifest Emmanuel in our lives every day. God with us, God with me, God in me. Lord, we need Emmanuel every day. We need Emmanuel in our lives, in our thoughts, and then we need the presence of God to be with us. And Lord, I thank you that that is the case, that no matter where we are, no matter what we feel like uh, we are, Lord, you're with us. You are Emmanuel. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of that. You would, you would kindle within, that, within us that reality so that we would not lose it, we would not misplace it or displace it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for that beautiful gift that you've given us, Lord. Lord, please send us into this week uh, with your presence and with your power. Now, may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. If you have any questions or need prayer, I'll sit at the front to speak with you. The rest of you, have a blessed week. Take care.